Chapter Five, Part One of *The Voyage of the Beagle*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Turnell. *The Voyage of the Beagle* by Charles Darwin. Chapter Five, Part One. Bahia Blanca. The Beagle arrived here on the twenty-fourth of August, and a week afterwards sailed for the Plata. With Captain Fitzroy's consent, I was left behind to travel by land to Buenos Aires. I will here add some observations which were made during this visit and on a previous occasion when the Beagle was employed in surveying the harbor. The plain, at the distance of a few miles from the coast, belongs to the great Pampian formation which consists in part of a reddish clay and in part of a highly calcareous marly rock nearer the coast there are some plains formed from the wreck of the upper plain and from mud gravel and sand thrown up by the sea during the slow elevation of the land of which elevation we have evidence in upraised beds of recent shells and of rounded pebbles of pumice scattered over the country at Punta Alta we have a section of one of these latter formed little plains which is highly interesting from the number and extraordinary character of the remains of gigantic land animals embedded in it. These have been fully described by Professor Owen in the Zoology of the Voyage of the Beagle, and are deposited in the College of Surgeons. I will here give only a brief outline of their nature. First, parts of three heads and other bones of the megatherium, the huge dimensions of which are expressed by its name. Secondly, the megalonyx, a great allied animal. Thirdly, the skeletotherium, also an allied animal, of which I obtained a nearly perfect skeleton. It must have been as large as a rhinoceros. In the nature of its head it comes, according to Mr. Owen, nearest to the cape anteater, but in some other respects it approaches to the armadillos. Fourthly, the mylodon darwinii, a closely related genus of little inferior size. Fifthly, another gigantic edental quadruped. Sixthly, a large animal with an osseous coat in compartments, very like that of an armadillo. Seventhly, an extinct kind of horse, to which I shall have again to refer. Eighthly, a tooth of a pachydermatous animal, probably the same with the macrachenia, a huge beast with a long neck like a camel, which I shall also refer to again. Lastly, the toxodon, probably one of the strangest animals ever discovered. In size it equaled an elephant or megatherium, but the structure of its teeth, as Mr. Owen states, proves indisputably that it was intimately related to the nars, the order which, at the present day, includes most of the smallest quadrupeds. In many details it is allied to the pachydermata. Judging from the position of its eyes, ears, and nostrils, it was probably aquatic, like the dugong and manatee, to which it is also allied. How wonderfully are the different orders, at the present time so well separated, blended together in different points of the structure of the toxodon. The remains of these nine great quadrupeds, and many detached bones, were found embedded on the beach, within the space of about two hundred yards square. It is a remarkable circumstance that so many different species should be found together, and it proves how numerous in kind the ancient inhabitants of this country must have been. At the distance of about thirty miles from Punta Alta, in a cliff of red earth, I found several fragments of bones, some of large size. Among them were the teeth of a gnar, 
equally in size and closely resembling those of the capybara, whose habits have been described, and therefore probably an aquatic animal. There is also part of the head of a tenomus, the species being different from the tucutuco, but with a close general resemblance. The red earth, like that of the pampas, in which these remains were embedded, contains, according to Professor Ehrenberg, eight freshwater and one saltwater infusorial animalcule. Therefore, probably, it was an estuary deposit. The remains at Punta Alta were embedded in stratified gravel and reddish mud, just such as the sea might now wash up on a shallow bank. They were associated with twenty-three species of shells, of which thirteen are recent and four others very closely related to recent forms. From the bones of the skeletotherium, including even the kneecap, being entombed in their proper relative positions, and from the osseous armor of the great armadillo-like animal being so well preserved, together with the bones of one of its legs, we may feel assured that these remains were fresh and united by their ligaments, when deposited in the gravel together with the shells. In a footnote here it says, M. August Brevard has described, in a Spanish work, Observaciones Geológicas, 1857, this district, and he believes that the bones of the extinct mammals were washed out of the underlying Pampian deposit, and subsequently became embedded with the still-existing shells. But I am not convinced by his remarks. M. Brevard believes that the whole enormous Pampian deposit is a sub-aerial formation, like sand dunes. This seems to me to be an untenable doctrine. End of footnote. Hence we have good evidence that the above enumerated gigantic quadrupeds, more different from those of the present day than the oldest of the tertiary quadrupeds of Europe, lived whilst the sea was peopled with most of its present inhabitants. And we have confirmed that remarkable law so often insisted on by Mr. Lyell, namely, that, quote, the longevity of species in the mammalia is upon the whole inferior to that of the testacea, unquote. The great size of the bones of the megatheroid animals, including the megatherium, the megalonyx, the skeletotherium, and the mylodon, is truly wonderful. The habits of life in these animals were a complete puzzle to naturalists, until Professor Owen solved the problem with remarkable ingenuity. The teeth indicate, by their simple structure, that these megatheroid animals lived on vegetable food, and probably on the leaves and small twigs of trees. Their ponderous forms and great strong curved claws seem so little adapted for locomotion that some eminent naturalists have actually believed that, like the sloths to which they are intimately related, they subsisted by climbing back downwards on the trees and feeding on the leaves. It was a bold, not to say preposterous, idea to conceive even antediluvian trees with branches strong enough to bear animals as large as elephants. Professor Owen, with far more probability, believes that, instead of climbing on the trees, they pulled the branches down to them, and tore up the smaller ones by the roots, and so fed on the leaves. The colossal breadth and weight of their hinder quarters, which can hardly be imagined without having been seen, become, on this view, of obvious service. Instead of being an encumbrance, their apparent clumsiness disappears. With their great tails and their huge heels firmly fixed like a tripod on the ground, they could freely exert the full force of their most powerful arms and great claws. Strongly rooted, indeed, must that tree have been which could have resisted such force. The mylodon, moreover, was furnished with a long extensile tongue like that of the giraffe, which, by one of those beautiful provisions of nature, thus reaches with the aid of its long neck its leafy food. 
I may remark that in Abyssinia the elephant, according to Bruce, when it cannot reach with its proboscis the branches, deeply scores with its tusks the trunk of the tree, up and down and all around, till it is sufficiently weakened to be broken down. The beds including the above fossil remains stand only fifteen to twenty feet above the level of high water. And hence the elevation of the land has been small. Without there has been an intercalated period of subsidence, of which we have no evidence, since the great quadrupeds wandered over the surrounding plains. And the external features of the country must have been very nearly the same as now. What, it may naturally be asked, was the character of the vegetation of that period? Was the country as wretchedly sterile as it now is? As so many of the co-embedded shells are the same with those now living in the bay, I was at first inclined to think that the former vegetation was probably similar to the existing one. But this would have been an erroneous inference, for some of those same shells live on the luxuriant coast of Brazil. And generally the characters of the inhabitants of the sea are useless as guides to judge of those on the land. Nevertheless, from the following considerations, I do not believe that the simple fact of many gigantic quadrupeds having lived on the plains round Bahia Blanca is any sure guide that they formerly were clothed with a luxuriant vegetation. I have no doubt that the sterile country a little southward, near the Rio Negro, with its scattered thorny trees, would support many and large quadrupeds. That large animals require a luxuriant vegetation has been a general assumption which has passed from one work to another, but I do not hesitate to say that it is completely false, and that it has vitiated the reasoning of geologists on some points of great interest in the ancient history of the world. The prejudice has probably been derived from India and the Indian islands, where troops of elephants, noble forests, and impenetrable jungles are associated together in everyone's mind. If, however, we refer to any work of travels through the southern parts of Africa, we shall find allusions in almost every page either to the desert character of the country, or to the numbers of large animals inhabiting it. The same thing is rendered evident by the many engravings which have been published of various parts of the interior. When the Beagle was at Cape Town, I made an excursion of some day's length into the country, which at least was sufficient to render that which I had read more fully intelligible. Dr. Andrew Smith, who, at the head of his adventurous party, has lately succeeded in passing the Tropic of Capricorn, informs me that, taking into consideration the whole of the southern part of Africa, there can be no doubt of its being a sterile country. On the southern and southeastern coast there are some fine forests, but with these exceptions the traveler may pass for days together through open plains covered by poor and scanty vegetation. It is difficult to convey any accurate idea of degrees of comparative fertility, but it may be safely said that the amount of vegetation supported at any one time by Great Britain exceeds, perhaps even tenfold, the quantity of an equal area in the interior parts of southern Africa. In a footnote, I mean by this to exclude the total amount which may have been successively produced and consumed during a given period. End footnote. The fact that bullock wagons can travel in any direction excepting near the coast, without more than occasionally half an hour's delay in cutting down bushes, gives, perhaps, a more definite notion of the scantiness of the vegetation. Now if we look to the animals inhabiting these wide plains, we shall find their numbers extraordinarily great, and their bulk immense. We must enumerate the elephant, three species of rhinoceros, and probably, according to Dr. Smith, two others, the hippopotamus, the giraffe, the boss kaffir, 
as large as a full-grown bull, and the elan. But little less, two zebras and the quacha, two gnus, and several antelopes even larger than these latter animals. It may be supposed that although these species are numerous, the individuals of each kind are few. By the kindness of Dr. Smith, I am enabled to show that the case is very different. He informs me that, in latitude twenty-four degrees, in one day's march with the bullock-wagons, he saw, without wandering to any great distance on either side, between one hundred and one hundred and fifty rhinoceroses, which belong to three species. The same day he saw several herds of giraffes, amounting together to nearly a hundred, and that, although no elephant was observed, yet they are found in this district. At the distance of a little more than one hour's march from their place of encampment, on the previous night, his party actually killed at one spot eight hippopotamuses, and saw many more. In the same river there were likewise crocodiles. Of course it was a case quite extraordinary to see so many great animals crowded together, but it evidently proves that they must exist in great numbers. Dr. Smith describes the country passed through that day as, quote, being thinly covered with grass and bushes about four feet high, and still more thinly with mimosa trees. The wagons were not prevented traveling in a nearly straight line. Besides these large animals, everyone the least acquainted with the natural history of the Cape has read of the herds of antelopes, which can be compared only with the flocks of migratory birds. The numbers indeed of the lion, panther, and hyena, and the multitude of birds of prey, plainly speak of the abundance of the smaller quadrupeds. One evening several lions were counted at the same time prowling round Dr. Smith's encampment. As this able naturalist remarked to me, the carnage each day in southern Africa must indeed be terrific. I confess it is truly surprising how such a number of animals can find support in a country producing so little food. The larger quadrupeds no doubt roam over wide tracts in search of it, and their food chiefly consists of underwood, which probably contains much nutriment in a small bulk. Dr. Smith also informs me that the vegetation has a rapid growth. No sooner is a part consumed than its place is supplied by a fresh stock. There can be no doubt, however, that our ideas respecting the apparent amount of food necessary for the support of large quadrupeds are much exaggerated. It should have been remembered that the camel— an animal of no mean bulk, has always been considered as the emblem of the desert. The belief that where large quadrupeds exist, the vegetation must necessarily be luxuriant, is the more remarkable, because the converse is far from true. Mr. Burchell observed to me that, when entering Brazil, nothing struck him more forcibly than the splendor of the South American vegetation contrasted with that of South Africa, together with the absence of all large quadrupeds. In his travels, he suggested that the comparison of the respective weights, if there were sufficient data, of an equal number of the largest herbivorous quadrupeds of each country would be extremely curious. If we take on one side the elephant, hippopotamus, giraffe, boss kaffir, elon, certainly three and probably five species of rhinoceros, and on the American side, two tapirs, the guanaco, three deer, the vicuna, pecari, capybara, after which we must choose from the monkeys to complete the number, and then place these two groups alongside each other, it is not easy to conceive ranks more disproportionate in size. After the above facts, we are compelled to conclude, against anterior probability, that among the mammalia there exists no close relation between the bulk of the species and the quantity of the vegetation in the countries which they inhabit. In a footnote, 
The elephant which was killed at Exeter Change was estimated, being partly weighed, at five tons and a half. The elephant actress, as I was informed, weighed one ton less, so that we may take five as the average of a full-grown elephant. I was told at the Surrey Gardens that a hippopotamus which was sent to England cut up into pieces was estimated at three tons and a half. We will call it three. From these premises we may give three tons and a half to each of the five rhinoceroses, perhaps a ton to the giraffe, and half to the boss kaffir as well as to the elan. A large ox weighs from twelve hundred to fifteen hundred pounds. This will give an average, from the above estimates, of two point seven of a ton for the ten largest herbivorous animals of southern Africa. In South America, allowing twelve hundred pounds for the two tapirs together, five hundred fifty for the guanaco and the vicuna, five hundred for the three deer, three hundred for the capybara, peccari, and a monkey, we shall have an average of two hundred and fifty pounds, which I believe is overstating the result. The ratio will therefore be as six thousand forty-eight to two hundred fifty, or twenty-four to one, for the ten largest animals from the two continents. And in another footnote. If we suppose the case of the discovery of a skeleton of a Greenland whale in a fossil state, not a single cetaceous animal being known to exist, what naturalist would have ventured to conjecture on the possibility of a carcass so gigantic, being supported on the minute crustacea and mollusca living in the frozen seas of the extreme north? End footnote. With regard to the number of large quadrupeds, there certainly exists no quarter of the globe which will bear comparison with southern Africa. After the different statements which have been given, the extremely desert character of that region will not be disputed. In the European division of the world, we must look back to the tertiary epochs to find a condition of things among the mammalia resembling that now existing at the Cape of Good Hope. Those tertiary epochs, which we are apt to consider as abounding to an astonishing degree with large animals, because we find the remains of many ages accumulated at certain spots, could hardly boast of more large quadrupeds than southern Africa does at present. If we speculate on the condition of the vegetation during those epochs, we are at least bound so far to consider existing analogies as not to urge as absolutely necessary a luxuriant vegetation, when we see a state of things so totally different at the Cape of Good Hope. We know that the extreme regions of North America, many degrees beyond the limit, where the ground at the depth of a few feet remains perpetually congealed, are covered by forests of large and tall trees. In a footnote, see Zoological Remarks to Captain Back's Expedition by Dr. Richardson. He says, quote, The subsoil north of latitude 56 degrees is perpetually frozen, the thaw on the coast not penetrating above three feet, and at Bear Lake, in latitude 64 degrees, not more than 20 inches. The frozen substratum does not of itself destroy vegetation, for forests flourish on the surface at a distance from the coast. In a like manner, in Siberia, we have woods of birch, fir, aspen, and larch, growing in a latitude, 64 degrees, where the mean temperature of the air falls below the freezing point, and where the earth is so completely frozen that the carcass of an animal embedded in it is perfectly preserved. With these facts we must grant, as far as the quantity alone of vegetation is concerned, that the great quadrupeds of the later tertiary epochs might, in most parts of northern Europe and Asia, have lived on the spots where their remains are now found. I do not here speak of the kind of vegetation necessary for their support, because, 
as there is evidence of physical changes, and as the animals have become extinct, so may we suppose that the species of plants have likewise been changed. These remarks, I may be permitted to add, directly bear on the case of the Siberian animals preserved in ice. The firm conviction of the necessity of a vegetation possessing a character of tropical luxuriance, to support such large animals, and the impossibility of reconciling this with the proximity of perpetual congelation, was one chief cause of the several theories of sudden revolutions of climate, and of overwhelming catastrophes, which were invented to account for their entombment. I am far from supposing that the climate has not changed since the period when those animals lived, which now lie buried in the ice. At present I only wish to show that as far as the quantity of food alone is concerned, the ancient rhinoceroses might have roamed over the steppes of central Siberia, the northern parts probably being under water, even in their present condition, as well as the living rhinoceroses and elephants over the Karos of southern Africa. I will now give an account of the habits of some of the more interesting birds which are common on the wild plains of northern Patagonia, and first for the largest, or South American ostrich. The ordinary habits of the ostrich are familiar to every one. They live on vegetable matter, such as roots and grass, but at Bahia Blanca I have repeatedly seen three or four come down at low water to the extensive mud-banks which are then dry, for the sake, as the gauchos say, of feeding on small fish. Although the ostrich in its habits is so shy, wary, and solitary, and although so fleet in its pace, it is caught without much difficulty by the Indian or gaucho armed with the bolas. When several horsemen appear in a semicircle, it becomes confounded and does not know which way to escape. They generally prefer running against the wind, yet at first start they expand their wings, and like a vessel make all sail. On one fine hot day I saw several ostriches enter a bed of tall rushes, where they squatted concealed till quite closely approached. It is not generally known that ostriches readily take to the water. Mr. King informs me, at the Bay of St. Blas, and at Port Valdez in Patagonia, he saw these birds swimming several times from island to island. They ran into the water both when driven down to a point, and likewise of their own accord when not frightened. The distance crossed was about two hundred yards. When swimming, very little of their bodies appear above water. Their necks are extended a little forward, and their progress is slow. On two occasions I saw some ostriches swimming across the Santa Cruz River, where its course was about four hundred yards wide, and the stream rapid. Captain Sturt, when descending the Murrumbidgee in Australia, saw two emus in the act of swimming. The inhabitants of the country readily distinguish, even at a distance, the cockbird from the hen. The former is larger and darker colored, and has a bigger head. In a footnote, a gaucho assured me that he had once seen a snowy white or albino variety, and that it was a most beautiful bird. The ostrich, I believe the cock, emits a singular deep-toned hissing note. When I first heard it, standing in the midst of some sand hillocks, I thought it was made by some wild beast, for it is a sound that one cannot tell whence it comes, or from how far distant. When we were at Bahia Blanca in the months of September and October, the eggs, in extraordinary numbers, were found all over the country. They lie either scattered and single, in which case they are never hatched, and are called by the Spaniards huachos or they are collected together into a shallow excavation which forms the nest. 
Out of the four nests which I saw, three contained twenty-two eggs each, and the fourth twenty-seven. In one day's hunting on horseback, sixty-four eggs were found. Forty-four of these were in two nests, and the remaining twenty scattered huachos. The gauchos unanimously affirm, and there is no reason to doubt their statement, that the male bird alone hatches the eggs, and for some time afterwards accompanies the young. The cock, when on the nest, lies very close. I have myself almost ridden over one. It is asserted that at such times they are occasionally fierce and even dangerous, and that they have been known to attack a man on horseback, trying to kick and leap on him. My informer pointed out to me an old man, whom he had seen much terrified by one chasing him. I observe in Burchell's Travels in South Africa that he remarks, quote, Having killed a male ostrich, and the feathers being dirty, it was said by the Hottentots to be a nest bird. Unquote. I understand that the male emu in the zoological gardens takes charge of the nest. This habit, therefore, is common to the family. The gauchos unanimously affirm that several females lay in one nest. I have been positively told that four or five hen-birds have been watched to go in the middle of the day, one after the other, to the same nest. I may add, also, that it is believed in Africa that two or more females lay in one nest. Although this habit at first appears very strange, I think the cause may be explained in a simple manner. The number of eggs in the nest varies from twenty to forty, and even to fifty, and, according to Azara, sometimes to seventy or eighty. Now, although it is most probable from the number of eggs found in one district being so extraordinarily great in proportion to the parent birds, and likewise from the state of the ovarium of the hen, that she may in the course of the season lay a large number, yet the time required must be very long. Azara states that a female in the state of domestication laid seventeen eggs, each at the interval of three days one from another. If the hen was obliged to hatch her own eggs, before the last was laid the first probably would be addled. But if each laid a few eggs at successive periods in different nests, and several hens, as is stated to be the case, combined together, then the eggs in one collection would be nearly of the same age. If the number of eggs in one of these nests is, as I believe, not greater on an average than the number laid by one female in the season, then there must be as many nests as females, and each cockbird will have its fair share of the labor of incubation. And that during a period when the females probably could not sit, from not having finished laying. In a footnote, Lichtenstein, however, asserts that the hens begin sitting when they have laid ten or twelve eggs, and that they continue laying, I presume, in another nest. This appears to me very improbable. He asserts that four or five hens associate for incubation with one cock, who sits only at night. End footnote. I have before mentioned the great numbers of huachos, or deserted eggs, so that in one day's hunting twenty were found in the state. It appears odd that so many should be wasted. Does it not arise from the difficulty of several females associating together and finding a male ready to undertake the office of incubation? It is evidence that there must at first be some degree of association between at least two females, otherwise the eggs would remain scattered over the wide plains, at distances far too great to allow of the male collecting them into one nest. Some authors have believed that the scattered eggs were deposited for the young birds to feed on. 
This can hardly be the case in America, because the huachos, although often found addled and putrid, are generally whole. When at the Rio Negro, in northern Patagonia, I repeatedly heard the gauchos talking of a very rare bird, which they called the Asvestrus petis. They described it as being less than the common ostrich, which is there abundant, but with a very close general resemblance. They said its color was dark and mottled, and that its legs were shorter, and feathered lower down than those of the common ostrich. It is more easily caught by the bolas than the other species. The few inhabitants who had seen both kinds affirmed they could distinguish them apart from a long distance. The eggs of the small species appeared, however, more generally known. And it was remarked, with surprise, that they were very little less than those of the rhea, but of a slightly different form, and with a tinge of pale blue. This species occurs most rarely on the plains bordering the Rio Negro but about a degree and a half farther south they are tolerably abundant. When at Port Desire in Patagonia, latitude 48 degrees, Mr. Martins shot an ostrich, and I looked at it, forgetting at the moment, in the most unaccountable manner, the whole subject of the petises, and thought it was a not full-grown bird of the common sort. It was cooked and eaten before my memory returned. Fortunately, the head, neck, legs, wings, many of the larger feathers, and a large part of the skin had been preserved. And from these a very nearly perfect specimen has been put together, and is now exhibited in the Museum of the Zoological Society. Mr. Gould, in describing this new species, has done me the honor of calling it after my name. Among the Patagonian Indians in the Strait of Magellan we found a half-Indian, who had lived some years with the tribe, but had been born in the northern provinces. I asked him if he had ever heard of the Avestrus Petis. He answered by saying, quote, Why, there are none others in these southern countries. Unquote. He informed me that the number of eggs in the nest of the Petis is considerably less than in that of the other kind, namely, not more than fifteen on an average but he asserted that more than one female deposited them. At Santa Cruz we saw several of these birds. They were excessively wary. I think they could see a person approaching when too far off to be distinguished themselves. In ascending the river few were seen, but in our quiet and rapid descent many, in pairs and by fours or fives, were observed. It was remarked that this bird did not expand its wings, when first starting at full speed, after the manner of the northern kind. In conclusion, I may observe that the Struthio rhea inhabits the country of La Plata as far as a little south of the Rio Negro in latitude 41 degrees, and that the Struthio darwinii takes its place in southern Patagonia, the part about the Rio Negro, being neutral territory. Monsieur A. Dorbigny, when at the Rio Negro, made great exertions to procure this bird, but never had the good fortune to succeed. In a footnote, when at the Rio Negro, we heard much of the indefatigable hours of this naturalist. Monsieur Alcide d'Orbigny, during the years 1825 to 1833, traversed several large portions of South America, and has made a collection, and is now publishing the results on a scale of magnificence, which at once places himself in the list of American travelers second only to Humboldt. Dobertshofer long ago was aware of there being two kinds of ostriches. He says, quote, you must know, moreover, that emus differ in size and habits in different tracts of land. For those that inhabit the plains of Buenos Aires and Tucuman are larger, and have black, white, and gray feathers. 
Those near to the Strait of Magellan are smaller and more beautiful, for their white feathers are tipped with black at the extremity, and their black ones in like manner terminate in white. End of chapter 5, part 1 Recording by Roger Turneau